This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs doing amazing things in business and beyond. Today's episode, another encore, originally aired way back in March. It's another favorite among listeners. The content is amazing, so we thought we'd air it again today. Let me get to the profile of the guest. So Matt LaRochelle is the co-founder of The Extreme Bean. From pickling in a condo, this company is now selling a jar of Extreme Bean every 11 seconds across national borders in places like Costco, Walmart, and others. In this episode, Matt is so generous in his approach to storytelling. He dissects the benefits of bootstrapping a business. He explains what it takes to get a niche food product into national retail. We also dive deep into the topic of business partnerships, and he shares his experience of growing a major business with his best friend and more. It's clear throughout this entire talk that Matt takes so much pride in what he does. It resonates through this entire episode. I think you guys will like it. So without delay, here is, again, Matt LaRochelle. Matt, the question I want to ask is, when did you guys, I mean, you got the recipe right. You started going to these trade shows. What was it that made you guys think that this could be a business that you could scale? Well, we're the only ones who thought this was a business that we could scale, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think, first of all, and I mean this uh, seriously, but also a little humorously, is I'm my biggest fan. I We tried this product and we we're like, damn, this is good stuff. And we just really believed in what we were making, me and Steve. And that's when we decided to introduce it. And the reaction was good, but I would say it was slow. It took us a long time for us to get out there and to get sampling in as many mouths as we could to get the pickup that we actually could see it scaling. It took, you know, and I'm talking years to get to a critical mass where, you know, now when you ask people about the extreme bean, most people that I talk to have heard of it. You know, that was a, a long time. And we always believed in our heart of hearts that we could scale, but it, it, it took probably, you know, close to five years before we really started to see it live on its own momentum. What was the pitch to these guys? I mean, was this something that, I mean, did you say this is something that tastes delicious, but you put it in a Caesar? Did you say this is a snack? Yeah, well, at, at the beginning, what we identified, because we didn't have any marketing money, we needed to be very laser focused in what this product was used for. We had to keep on saying the same things as much as we can to get through to people. So our pitch was easy. You know, we went directly to bars and restaurants at that time and say, listen, celery is inconsistent in cost. It's high one day, lower-ish the next. 
your bartender or your serving staff are cutting it up. And then, so that costs you some money. And then at the end of the day, you can't keep celery for more than one day. So it, you throw it out. Celery goes in bins where all the server's hands are in there. So that's a food safety issue. So we had these very specific reasons why practically you should pick up the extreme bean and get rid of the celery stick. Now, the un, I guess the, the more emotional piece was it's fun. It's topical. It's really, really tasty. So your guests will have a better experience with it. And practically, you will pick up savings and time by using it. So we were kind of hitting them on both sides of that. And your mom, I mean, you're saying that she was a pickle expert in the, in the beginning. I mean, without your mom, would this business ever have happened, do you think? I, I really don't think so. Because at the time, me and Steve were having an idea a minute. And, you know, well, I would say my mom and my family, how I grew up without that background, we used to pickle stuff every, every, every fall, right? We uh, were French Canadian uh, as far back as I, I can trace. We've been here in, here in Canada. And, you know, this was not a foreign concept to me. I, I saw my aunts and uncles and mothers, you know, grandmothers, but that's what we did in the fall. We would pick the garden and we would pickle everything. So that's why when Steve had the idea of a bean, I had a knee jerk reaction and said, well, let's pickle it. Cause then, you know, we can have it any time of year. Hmm. So how, okay. So fast forward a little bit, you're going to these trade shows, you guys have something that you think tastes great. People like it. Are you guys all in at this point? Do you have jobs? How are you financing this? <laughs> we had jobs. Oh, yeah. We, 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 uh, we were still working in the bar and restaurant business. We didn't have, to this day, me and Steve still own our company 50-50. We didn't have any outside investors. And, you know, we didn't come from family for money. So we had to work. I was bar managing. Uh, Steve was um, doing odd jobs and working as a bartender. Steve was putting more time at the beginning in than I was. He was picking up odd jobs and I was, um, you know, working full time. So we were just, you know, that's one of the reasons probably why it took us so long to get it going because we didn't have the ability to quit our jobs until around 2010. And that's when we were, you know, the company was enough. Still, we weren't getting paid, but it was enough to we could see enough and far enough in the future to say, well, this one day we probably will get paid. Let's go all in and get this going. How uncomfortable, I mean, was that for you guys when you made that leap from saying, okay, we're doing this sort of on the side and seeing what kind of momentum we can generate to the point where you said, okay, we're done with our jobs. Let's jump all in. Yeah, that was, uh, for me, that was, that's a fairly personal question. So in 2009, I was, I really disliked my job. I was working as a bar manager and working the weekends and the nights and I was getting older and wanted to start a family. And that was just not conducive to doing all that. And I was just uh, in, in generally, in general, not happy. So I was really already taking stock of that position and looking to see if this company could, you know, sustain me. Going forward. And then in September in 2009, my dad passed away and he was, you know, 60 years old. He just turned 60 years old and he passed away. And that was something that showed me that life is short. You know, he was a relatively young man with uh, full of spirit and heart and ended up passing away. And he left me 
uh, he, he had a life insurance of $100,000 and I got three uh, siblings. So we all split it. So we all got $33,000 each of life insurance. So at that point, I decided, you know, and I, I credit my father for helping me launch the business to this day. I said, you know, life is short. I have a little bit of money. This is all I have in the world, but it will, if I live cheap, this can sustain me for, you know, a year, maybe two, if I live super cheap. So at that point in January 1st, I got through the Christmas season in the restaurant business, but on January 1st, 2010, I quit and I started, uh, me and Steve had little tiny little offices, like literally desk touching each other. And I said, okay, we only had two employees at the time, me and Steve. And I said, let's go. We, let's see if we can make this happen. It sounds like, I mean, the, the, personal side of your story is also something I, I wasn't totally familiar with. I mean, the, your, your mother, you know, and her role in the early days of extreme being and her being the pickling expert, uh, sort of carved out what's now an incredible product or set of products, big story, uh, but also your father. And then that, that situation, which kind of, you know, who knows what, what, what would have happened if that, that didn't happen. I want to, I mean, is there any more to say around the personal side before we talk a little bit about the, the partnership with Steve, because I want to jump in there as well. His family was as supportive in the making this happen, although, you know, money wasn't brought to the table, but just the help and the always being able to lean on them. If, you know, we needed something, I got some great stories in the early days of how his family really helped us out and got us through some challenging times. So it really, although me and Steve have, you know, the people who were at the forefront of this company, we had a very strong support system behind us from, you know, our family. Of course, without getting too personal and sharing anything confidential, is there anything with respect to those challenges and Steve's family's influence that you could share? I have this one story that Steve's mom will not let me live down to this day. <laughs> so we, mm -hmm. were, we were starting the company and it was going quite well. And we sold about 20 cases to this major distributor. And then we went out and did our job and we did, we, we did pretty good. And then we sold 40 cases to the same distributor and we went out our job. We did uh, pretty good. And then we had, I, I was working at a bar and restaurant at a time and they ordered a bunch of those 20 cases. So the distributor decides to put in 80 cases. Well, at that time, 80 cases would have took us probably two, three weeks to do because we were working at other jobs and we were, you know, we, we couldn't dedicate full time. So we grabbed his family. We went out to their farmhouse and, and his sister was uh, nine months pregnant. He sat her at the, you know, the island top and she packed beans. And at that time I was scheduled to go on a cruise that my ex-girlfriend's mother you know, got it. So I had to go. This mm -hmm. was already pre-scheduled. And so anyway, so his whole family rallied that weekend and literally packed. So 80 cases, that's 800. So 900 jars of beans in the weekend to fulfill this order. And, you know, had, you know, the, the blistering hands and all the things that come with it to make this happen. So, you know, they were always willing to, you know, lend a hand and jump in wherever they needed our you know, offices. His dad was a painter at one point. His dad painted the offices, right? Like they're always there to, you know, what do you need and what can we do? Yeah. Sounds like, I mean, you guys had an incredible support system, not just from your side, but, all, but also from Steve's. I want to shift gears into the business. For those who don't know, I mean, we're talking a lot about the early days of, of the business. Extreme Bean, which is now, I know it's across every major 
grocery chain in Canada. I don't know how many retailers or grocers you are in in the United States. Could you give the listeners just an overview, besides the obvious, the Loblaws, the Costco's, the Walmarts of the world, what your reach is now today? Okay, so we are, from a Canadian perspective, we're coast to coast. We're in every major banner in Canada. So without listing them all, we are now, we're in a pickle set of pretty much everybody. And from a food service standpoint, we are with every major food service distributor across Canada. There is no place in this large, beautiful land that we have that we can't get to through our uh, distribution network. So that is GFS, Cisco, Summit, Lanigan's, Eberhardt. So Canada is relatively mature at this point. We have just recently, over the last year or so, started doing some work in the U.S. Now, Tech Costco Texas has been a client of ours. We're doing some work with HEB, some so some early stage work with uh, some of these retailers in the U.S., which is all pointing to fairly positive results. Can you give us an idea of how many jars of extreme bean or asparagus or some of the other products that you have are actually being sold? Well, a little fun fact is a jar of extreme bean is consumed every 11 seconds. Wow. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, so you, you, you can you can do the math on that and how many jars go out the uh, go out the back door every year. But we, you know, we've we've gone from cotton in industry to a relatively nice size manufacturer. At this point. Yeah, that, that's a that's a lot of beans. Yeah. <laughs> do you remember who the first retail grocery chain was to pick up? the product? I do. I do. We, uh, Sobeys was the first major retailer. Now we had some specialty retailers before that, but major retailers. And when I say major, uh, I use the, um, the filter of has a national presence. They picked us up, but they picked us up regionally in Southern Ontario. And they did a, uh, test market where it was, you know, 40, I think it was 40 stores or 30 stores, something like that. I think this test, test market, so we have to deliver, you know, four or five cases to every store individually. Well, there's so much pent up demand from the bars and restaurants been using it over so many years that it just, it skyrocketed to, you know, the number one seller in the pickle set. So on that success, we were able to get, you know, Sobeys National and then the domino started to fall, you know, the, the, the Loblaws and then the Costco's or the Walmarts or the uh, metros of the world started to take notice and then we were you know able to get go national essentially in all all major retailers for somebody that has a niche food product let's say for example vegan granola bar that they think Mm -hmm. tastes phenomenal they're selling it into specialty stores and they want to take that next leap and now sell to a national grocery chain Mm -hmm. what advice would you give to that small business as to how to do that how did you guys do that yeah, I'll just you know explain how we did that. We used to, and to this day too, it, it still rings true. We use in in our example, we use food service for our trial market. So we were able to use a, the food service channel for people to get our product into people's mouths. That was our way of doing it. But if you, as the vegan bar example, uh, you gave. I believe if you if you believe in your product and your product is really good, and that's what I tell our guys here all the time, anybody could tell sell something once. You better make whatever you're selling phenomenal because you can't build a business on selling a food product once. You have to come back for more. So your 
attention has to be so focused on quality and taste. That has to be always number one. But once you have that and you, you believe in that, then you have to get into people's mouths. So that could be consumer shows. That could be, you know, we use some food service stuff or street festivals or in-store sampling. Whatever it is that you can do, you know, you have to get people to try it. Mm. Okay. So if you got, I guess one, once you get into a Sobeys and you want to say, get into the next level up, say get into a Costco, mm-hmm. how, how does a small business negotiate with a behemoth like Costco? Do you have <laughs> any insights that you can share on that? <laughs> well, uh, never, yeah, for- by the way, that's not even a mention. Uh, you're also in Walmart. So you could use Walmart as an obvious example as well. Well, I'll say this. First of all, you're not going to get a store to pick you up if you don't sell. You have to have a level of confidence that you're going to sell. And then after that is, it's just, it's just talking to people, right? People talking to people. So they have a business and they're in the business of selling through product. You're in the business of providing products. So as long as you can go into them with a certain amount of confidence that your product will move off the shelf and you can more or less guarantee them that it will, they're actually quite open to trying new products. They need new products. You know, in this day and age, people are very hungry for different, healthier options or, you know, more more interesting or more fun options to do. And these major retailers have recognized that. This is not the 1970s where, you know, everything was pretty stable and major brands were major brands and, you know, uh, niche products didn't really have anywhere to go. Nowadays, people are craving niche stuff. People are craving new and interesting stuff. And the buyers have recognized that. So if you can bring something to them that they can see their clients wanting, then they're really relatively easy to deal with. Mm-hmm. So if they, I mean, if they really love the product and they see the potential for sales, what other concerns do they raise? Do they talk about concern over you being able to keep up with demand? Do they talk about uh, your supply chain or do they look, do they do an audit of your facility? What are some of the other concerns that they look for? Well, for sure, food safety is big. Nobody wants to be on the wrong end of that. Now, our plant has been CFIA certified, FDA, GF2 certified, gold standard. We have been audited by Walmarts. We've been audited by Costco's. Uh, we've been audited by most of our big clients. So that is absolutely paramount. They want to know, especially you know, if you're small and you don't have national presence, such as a craft, or you know, you can assume that the, the bigger guys have all this stuff already buttoned down. Whereas they want to check out the smaller guys to make sure that they do too. So that would be something. And but from a business owner or you know, an owner or anybody in charge, that's okay. You actually want them to check you out. You actually mm-hmm. want all this regulation in place because at the end of the day, the last thing you ever want to do is have a problem with your food. So it makes me sleep at night. I know it makes Steve sleep better at night that all these regulations are in place and that we have to do them to comply. And there's nothing wrong with that. Did you guys always have that? Were you always, I guess, quote unquote, compliant? Or did you have to become, like, was there, I guess what I'm asking is, was there a point in the business where you were operating in the gray? Yes. In, in the beginning, you do operate in the gray, but with this, with, with major 
I would say we were operating in gray, but we weren't operating illegally. So you don't need this certification if you know, you're not shipping over national or provincial lines. So if you're, let's say, a farmer that wants to make jam and selling it at farmer, farmer's markets, these regulations don't apply to you. So essentially, that's what we were doing. But once you get big and you want to ship over provincial lines and you want to ship over national lines, there's a bunch of regulations that kick in that you have to be compliant. So we had to, to do it to, to stay compliant. Let's talk about product expansion just for a second. Do these chains look for innovation? Are they asking questions about what you intend to launch next in terms of product mix? Yeah, and that's something you also have to be careful of because you don't know your business like you know your business. So, for example, when we launched the Extreme Bean Hot and Spicy, it was a, on all accounts, it it was measured as a big success. So the retailers naturally were saying, what else do you have? What else do you have? And so you're kind of getting pushed to come out with some other products, and sometimes you might not be ready for them. Sometimes you might not have the marketing machine in place to launch another product. So you can get, I guess, unfocused or in trouble by launching too many SKUs because your your core SKU was very popular, and then you start launching a bunch of stuff underneath it. They're not as popular, and then the bloom comes off the roads, and then you know the I guess the buyers will go a little dark on you because you consider yourself a little bit of a one-hit wonder. So when you're when when you have a success on your first product, you have to be careful about what you launch after that because that has to have a measure of success, and you have to be ready to you know put the marketing dollars behind it, go to the consumer shows, go to the you know the trade shows, and if you're not, you probably should just wait and. Go from there. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Tulusma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. Electricast. Yeah, and you guys, I mean, you guys have stayed pretty tightly focused, right, in your skew mix. I mean, relative to how long you've been around, you've been around, I want to say, eight years, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, full-time, uh, eight years, a little longer than that, like, you know, packing our first jar. But, yeah, so over the years, we've probably launched about eight SKUs. Now, you know, the Caesar Rimmer, some of these were variations of the Extreme Bean, like the Extreme Bean Hot and Spicy, Extreme Bean Garlic and Dill, the Extreme Bean Sweet and Savory. Now, there's not, after the Extreme was already made, there's not a ton of innovation around that other than flavoring and your process your packing mm-hmm. process and it relatively stays the same. So you can almost bottle that up, you know, no pun intended into one innovation and then some line extensions off of that. 
But then we came up with the asparagus, which was an innovation, and the Caesar Rimmer, 2005, which was an innovation. So, you know, and then there was, there's line extensions off of all those. But Yeah, so, I mean, it sounds very calculated in the approach. Like, do you have a process when you're thinking about adding a potential new skew to your brand? Well, we have a filter. I wouldn't say it's a, it's a tried and true process. We had a years ago, whatever you, your idea 18 months ago, like you already might be behind the curve in two years. So my thing was that doesn't work for us. We need to be able, one of our strategic advantages in the marketplace is that we're nimble and we have to stay nimble. So we need to launch quicker. When we see something that works, we need to launch quicker. But we do run it through some filters and our filters are tasty, topical, social, and fun. So anything that we launch has to be number one, tasty. It has to be a good quality product. We will not launch anything that we are not super fans over. Topical, it has to be topical. There has to be some sort of water cooler. And if you look at the extreme, there's a little bit of a kind of fun water cooler-ish discussion about you know how our company got started and the, you know, the crazy bean guy in the jar. And it has to be social. Everything that we do, you you know, you're not going to have a drink by yourself, but if you do, I'm not judging, but you know, usually you'll have a drink. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> you might, but there are some that, that do have drinks <laughs> by themselves. <laughs> if you do, I'm not judging. I'm sure I've been guilty uh, of, of it on many occasions, but for the most part, you'll have a drink with a friend, with your wife, with uh, some colleagues. So we actually, uh, all of our, even in our marketing on the food side, we do share platters, we do rewards, and appetizers that are meant to be sharing and the last one is fun it has to be fun if it's not fun then you're just a marinated vegetable and you know there's no fun in that so we run it through those filters and if and if any new product can hit those all four of those pillars then we'll uh we'll take a serious look at it that is cool i mean i've uh, this is certainly the first time i've heard of that type of filter as it relates to a potential business idea or product idea. But insofar as, or to the extent that people share socially today, you're certainly, I think, at an advantage if you're putting a product idea through these four filters that you described. People have wanted to be entertained for the, from the beginning of time. So any product that we launch, we, we, we try to bring that little bit of that entertainment, that fun factor, that sociability to it. Yeah, okay, so... Let's shift gears a little bit. I want to go back to the partnership topic because it's of interest to me and I'm sure it's of interest to other people who are thinking about partnerships. You and Steve have been business partners in uh, this business for eight years. Were you, what's like, how did you guys connect and were you always destined to be partners? Me and Steve met, first of all, we met bartending, but that is not the full story. So I was dating this girl at the time and I was 22 years old and we were living together and it was way ahead of my time living together, settled down at 22 years old. And my, I was out with, you know, the guys and the, you know, everybody, the employees from the bar and I got home late and my girlfriend said, listen, you know, you have to figure out whether you want to be in a relationship or do you want to kind of not be for a few more years? So she said, I'm going to my sister or my parents house for the weekend when I come back I want your decision so at that point I said well I, I guess I have to make a decision so I made a decision so I moved out that day 
And I didn't have a place to live, but Steve mentioned in passing, we barely knew each other at the time. He mentioned in passing, he says, I might have a room, my roommate might be moving out in a couple months. If you're looking for a place to stay, you can, you know, we'll talk about that. So I pulled up, you know, at that moment and I said, you know, knock on the door, his roommate answered and I said, I'm moving in. And Steve got home from the working in the bar that night. And there I was, I had all my stuff shoved in his solarium in his little apartment and a little spot made out for my bed at 22 years old. And I said, Steve, sorry, but I have no other place to go. You got to take me in. And he did. And at that point we became, so I was 22. We were 22. He was 23. At that point we became best friends and we've been best friends. For, life. for people who are concerned about getting into business with their best friends, what advice would you give and how do you guys make things work so well between the two of you? Uh, yeah. So this is making it work has to be, you know, you have to have an extreme amount of respect for the person, but you have to do this by design. So when I quit in 2009, me and Steve sat down and we had a really interesting discussion. I said, as we grow this company, we need to understand not essentially a reporting structure, but a decision-making tree. We can't have, as we start building employees, employee running to dad or running to mom because he didn't know like what dad said. And it, it, we understood at that kind of young age that we needed to understand as we start building employees, how, do they, how does the company make decisions? So at that point, we made a decision-making tree and we understood at, at the very top, we put my name and Steve's name. Both of the people had 50% ownership. So whatever the structure is moving up, have to report to these people. So essentially what we did is we said, okay, well, Steve, what, what do you want to do? Matt, what do you want to do? And then we went from there we said, okay, so if this is your skill set and this is what you want to do, this is this is how decisions are going to be made to you, how decisions are going to be made in that vein. And then is this what I want to do? This is how decision. And ultimately, somebody had to be the final decision. And that was the person that was in charge of monitoring and taking care of the finances for the most part, but had a uh, more aptitude when dealing with multiple. So how, how we we just went and we put it on a on a sheet and we. Block, you know, made blocks and we said, okay, this is how, how they're reporting, but the decision makings will move up the tree. And whoever ends up at the final decision on these particular items still have to answer back to the shareholders. And shareholders happen to be me and Steve. So although there was a operational rigor, whoever ended up owning that decision or making that decision inherently had to answer for that at the top. So it, it worked out for us. And we were, and we've stayed true to that structure ever since. So, and it doesn't only work for a partnership, it works for all your employees and their needs. So these, they have a clear understanding of who makes a decision on this, whatever, you know, that particular issue is. How many, how many employees are you guys now? We're about 50. So over the course of the last eight years, and as you've grown to 50, there must have been some times where you and Steve as 50-50 partners have had to have some difficult conversations. Like, how do you guys navigate those conversations as best friends in a business? 
Yeah. So I think a lot of partnerships that I talk to under or give me feedback. It's like, I'm doing more than that person or I'm doing, you know, this and I'm bringing more value to the table and you just cannot let your mind go there. You have to be very understanding that if you start saying that you're personally worth more than that other person, that's already setting you up to fail when it comes to a 50-50 partnership. So you let those dark thoughts, don't let those dark thoughts come into your mind. And then so under that light, you can say, okay, so if everybody's equal, everybody brings different stuff to the table, but the value is still there on both sides of the fence, then you can go to go to a spot and say, whatever that decision was, they're doing the best. They feel that that is the best decision for the company. And when you put yourself in other shoes and look through it through that light, you don't say it's a wrong decision. You say, well, that might not have been the decision I would have made, but why do you feel that's the best for the company? And oftentimes they'll tell you, and it makes total sense because you're not deep into that world. And you know, so make sure you're looking. I would say that we've always been able to look through it challenges in the proper light mm -hmm. life i mean life happens right and stuff sort of blindsides you and then say for example somebody you know one of you is dealing with a personal challenge uh at home or whatever somebody's had a child somebody has to go away for a while somebody gets ill whatever it might be like have you guys had those moments where you've had to really test yourself like you, you mentioned not going there, like don't let your mind go to that dark place where you think I'm doing more than my partner, but sometimes mm -hmm. life happens. And then, you know, you're having to carry the weight for the lack of a better term. That's, that's your role now while your partner is mm -hmm. dealing with his or her shit. So how does, mm -hmm. how does that work? Right. So I have two kids. Uh, Steve has none. So you might be able to answer that question better, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's been times and, you know, and it's not even that big a deal it could be i'm taking my family on vacation or there's something going on but this has been booked and I, I just can't change some of these family obligations that you have so those do come up they'll 100 always come up but since we've been best friends for 22 years i personally how i've fought off any of those types of issues in a partnership is you look you look at it through a broad lens you say okay well yes i might be working harder than him or him you, you know, for it last six months, you know, last eight months. But if you look at the, the body of work in a larger lens, you see like kind of all irons out eventually. Um, but I would, I would say this, if you are getting into partnership with somebody, you have to match your work ethic. Because if you have somebody who has a different, I guess, perspective on what work that ethic is, that's really hard to kind of make work. Me and Steve believe in uh, putting the work in. How you have to put the work in for success. If somebody believes that, you know, you can do a four-hour work week and still get the same success, well, I, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying those values might not line up very well, and that could cause problems. So, you know, our values align extremely well. Although we're very, very different people, you know, our values of how we want to run the company align pretty tightly. Hopefully Tim Ferriss just heard that comment. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, a couple last questions and I'll let you go. I want to ask you briefly about financing during a high growth period. So you guys are 50, 50 partners. So how 
do you guys finance during high growth? If you can get your traditional banks on side to finance your growth, that, in my perspective, has been a better route for us. Now, equity is expensive money. Eventually, that equity, those roosters are going to come home and they're going to want their their peace. And, and, and rightly so. They put up the money in a risky environment. And if it all works out, they should get uh, quite a bit of upside. But it's going to be expensive for the owner and they're going to be doing all the heavy lifting. So what we did from a financing perspective, it was super tough. And I don't, I, I don't want to you know, downplay that. Our first line of credit was $16,000 and we actually had to give them $16,000 and they put in a, in a secure fund for them to loan us $16,000. But it was about starting a relationship. <laughs> the bank had yeah. zero risk. And zero risk. Yeah, 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 yeah. All, all the yeah. leverage. Okay. Right. Right. And we were supposed to be thankful of that. Um, but, yeah, well, thanks, thanks for that. But what that did was open the door to a relationship. And that's where I've been very influential in our company is to say that they're just selling money. You don't deal with them any different than you would deal with somebody you know that is selling you beans or that is selling you're selling to. So after that relation start, I spend a lot of time and effort keeping them in the loop on our business. Once a year, I pretty much demand that the visitor plant with whoever our relationship managers with her direct boss to make the decisions because you have to get to the boss that makes the decisions. You don't want to leave that person in a, in a black box. You have to understand your business because ultimately your relationship manager usually has to go someplace for clearance. So get to that person whoever that is. So I invite them down to the plant and I walk them around and I give them a PowerPoint presentation. I explain to them our growth and our future and I do the math and I do the work and, you know, get them on site so they have complete visibility on where we're going and where we've been. And you can put a name to the, to the paper. So, you know, that in itself, I think has done wonders for being able to stay in a traditional banking model and expand with them instead of going for any outside equity. And, you know, in, you know, kudos to them. They've been very supportive over the years. Although, you know, I won't say that the, right, you know, blank checks, everything that they've helped us out with, there's been a lot of rigor around that to prove that this was a good investment for them. And that's that, that sales process is easier now that you guys have a facility. I mean, when you didn't have a facility and you wanted to, I don't know, extend your line of credit. What were you, what were you showing them? Uh, $16,000 uh, cash. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is, you know, what I just explained has, you know, over the last few years, we've been able to do that. But at the beginning, honestly, it's, it's, it's second jobs. It's, you know, bootstrapping. It is, you know, just putting every dime that you make back into the company and, that's just the way we did it. It's hard. It's not preferable, but if, you know, when do you want your pain? Do you want it at the beginning or do you want it at the end? Me and Steve decided to take it at the beginning and really bootstrap and, and work hard and, and, and live cheap. So we didn't have to take a, the pain now where we would have a third person or, you know, potentially more as partners. And we would have to, you know, deal with all that complexity in doing it at that point. Yeah, the, the pain in the end being additional partners, additional shareholders you've got to answer to. That's right. Okay. 
And by the way, I mean, your facility is very impressive. I, I don't, it's, it's state of the art. I don't think listeners really can understand uh, just by hearing you talk about it, how impressive it is. Thanks. Okay. So you, you mentioned kids before you had this business pre-children, you've got this business post-children. Can you point to a couple of key ways your life has changed that you didn't expect after you had children? <laughs> to be honest, I didn't understand how children focus you in business. Hmm. I think that I am a stronger business person, stronger leader, stronger person in general because I have kids. Kids have a way of grounding us, I feel. And the actual, they have a way of structuring our schedules, <laughs> per se. You know, there is, the grounding is one thing, but you know, I'm in bed every night now by 9.30, 10 o'clock because I'm exhausted because the kids are up at, you know, 6, 5.36 every morning. So the, just the schedule. And so when you wake up, you are, your body is so used to what you're doing that it, no, it can turn on right away. And I just find it extremely powerful to be on such a kid driven schedule. But yeah. I didn't quite understand. That. I didn't know that was going to happen. Did you feel like you had, um, kind of like a renewed purpose for building wealth, building a business? No, actually the, the kids, I have no interest in leaving this company to my kids. I think, um, if they wanted to get involved, they would have to start at the bottom for sure. I just, I think they got to make their own way. I think there's a lot of self-worth and joy that comes in making your own way. And I'm going to promote my kids to be entrepreneurial, but find what, what, what drives them, what makes them passionate about life. So did I get more focused on the business because I had kids? No, n not really. Uh, the business drives me for other reasons than, you know, leaving it for my kids or building wealth for my kids. I, I believe my kids, Listen, I'm going to do everything I can for them without being over the top. But I think they have to find their own way and they have to struggle a little bit and they have to make their own mistakes. And I think in the end, that's going to pay huge dividends for them if I let them go through that growth process. It's uh, great advice. I think we'll, we'll um, wrap up on that note. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on. We, we could probably do this again for round two at some point down the road. I wish you all of the best continued success with Extreme Bean and everything else that you and Steve are working on together. It's really an, an incredible story. Where can people find out more about you guys? www.mattandsteve.com or extremebean.com. We are, please join our Facebook community or Instagram. We are currently running a big uh, St. Patty's Day promotion. Spin the wheel and uh, get yourself some free stuff. Awesome. Okay, man. Well, it's been a pleasure. Have uh, an amazing rest of 2018 and uh, please stay in touch. Okay, buddy. Thanks. Okay. Take care, Matt. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase, building subscription businesses for retail brands. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. 
So if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric acid. Electric acid.